Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten. Uh, if you listen to the last two episodes, the Donato-specific episode and the Monogle-specific episode, thank you for, you know, coming with us on that little bit of a departure. We actually had a lot of fun kind of talking about our own journeys through horror. Um, it was cathartic. We felt emotions. And now we're done. And we're not going to do that again, ever. So those will be in the feed. If you haven't listened to them, we encourage you to go back and check. But we really want to get back to doing what we do best on the show, which is bringing in an awesome guest and talking about some horror movies. Uh, I am, as always, one half of your Matt hosts. I'm Matt Monagle. I'm joined by my partner in crime, uh, who's a, a real-life boy, a grown-up adult, Matt Sano. How you doing, buddy? I am so happy to lock my emotions away for another millennia. That's um, That seems healthy. Sure. Let's do that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, the podcast is like free therapy at times, but, uh, you know, I'd rather just talk about Demon Wind some more and ignore the problems of my life. No, no, we don't want you to get serious. It gets weird when you get serious. I, I, I prefer Donato the Clown. Yay, the Jester. Yeah, that's what I like. Um, all right. Well, if this is your first episode, congratulations, you found us. This is the podcast where we talk about the best in genre films that have five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Every week, unless we're talking about ourselves, we have an incredible guest. This week is definitely, definitely no different, and it's actually kind of a cool and important distinction because this is the first time we've had somebody who has appeared on CertifiedForgotten.com but hasn't appeared on the podcast come onto the podcast. Donato, introductions, man, please. Yeah, I didn't realize this is our first reverse guest. Mm -hmm. Congratulations, the person I'm about to introduce, who you have read on the website, as Mr. Monagle has alluded to, writing about Friday the 13th and that little lawsuit thing that's... Well, it's still going on. In any case, you know her writing from the internet, such as Bloody Disgusting, What to Watch, and a few other sites that I'm sure this person will plug later. It is Lindsay Smashley Traves. <laughs> that was like 25% of my real name. Um, well, it's literally my best <laughs> attempt at it. But 100% of your Twitter handle, which is all that really matters. True, 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 true. Split in half by Smashley. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the way it is. Did I, did I even get your last name right? No, not even close. Um, my last name is two syllables. It is Travis. I, you know what? I knew that. And I just wanted you to correct everyone because it's such a common thing to get wrong. So the ex- the explainer is necessary. It's true. It's true. It is spelled wrong. I'll take ownership of that. And uh, yeah, most people do get it wrong. So yeah, your, your good lineage, is, lineage is messed up here. It's whoever na- spelled your name. I'll call them and let them know you think that. Uh, I mean, we could continue making fun of Lindsay's last name, Donato. That's a weird tangent to go down, but we could do that. Or, yeah. or we could ask questions and learn more about her. I'm going to suggest we do the latter. Um, Lindsay, we've been friends for a minute. I don't, I don't know what it is you do, and I don't understand why you have knowledge about so many things. I'm just going to throw that out there. Oh. Um, because it seems like every time there is a pop culture-related thing, you bring a wealth of experience to that thing. I know you're involved in the law. I know that you're involved in like comic book culture. I know that you've been like in a whole bunch of different things. So before we talk about the beginnings, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to be like, how do you know so much shit? Oh, I'm so flattered. Uh, you couldn't see, but I was like doing these like very flattered poses of like my shoulder forward going like, oh my, um, that was very nice of you. Uh, I like a lot of things that is true, specifically pop culture. Um, I know about the law because I, I guess technically still am a lawyer, but I'm not currently practicing. Um, but I was a lawyer. I was a litigator for about five years. Uh, so I tend to know things about various lawyerings, as Charlie Kelly might say. 
Um, yeah, I'm very much into comic book stuff. I actually started writing mostly about comic books and sports before focusing on movies, which happened kind of organically and in a good way, because I think I am better at talking about movies than comic books and sports. Well, that's not true. I like talking about comic books still. Yeah. And you're, you're one of our resident hockey experts, correct? Yes. I very much like hockey. Correct. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So when I say sports, I mean hockey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like sports, but like hockey and like sometimes other sports, if it's like it comes up in conversation, but yeah, hockey. No, this is good because I, I have said this for years um, since I'm from Alaska, but I say the Pacific Northwest. I've always said that when Seattle got a professional hockey team, I was going to take up hockey because it's a sport I've never known. So <sighs> another thing I will be coming to you for advice on is hockey because I need to become a Seattle Kraken fan now that they have a team. You have to become a Seattle Kraken fan. It's going to be hard for me to not become a Seattle Kraken fan because I already got really, really hyped about the Vegas Golden Knights. And then I was like, oh, no, a new hockey team? What am I supposed to do? Um, but, yeah, my, my West Coast team immediately became Vegas. So now I'm in a very confusing position. That's okay. There's still time. Mm -hmm. They're not even a real team yet. Not yet. And <laughs> who knows right. when? <laughs> so uh, thank you for that. I just I was like, why does Lindsay know stuff? Now I, I like know why she knows stuff. stuff. I like stuff. It's true. I'm, I'm a passionate person. So when I like something, I go all the way. That's you. Then, then you're a very welcome guest on this podcast because that's a common theme here. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, if you've never listened to this show, you know, part of the thing we like to do is we like to talk about the beginnings of, of horror for our guests, the beginnings of genre cinema and where those roots lay, because it's always an interesting conversation and people always have such cool, for lack of a better word, origin stories when it comes to the genre. So Lindsay, switching gears from now to then, Talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, your beginnings with horror, those first couple of movies, the books, the things that scared you when you were little and you were like, oh, I like this feeling. Okay. Yeah. So um, it's funny, like what I've learned a lot in writing about and talking about horror more and more is that I always considered myself a pretty latecomer to the genre. I didn't think that I liked horror for so much of my life until I was in uh, undergrad. So I was like, 20, 19, 20, and I lived alone for the first time and got really hooked on watching scary movies alone. Um, but I actually was always into horror. I just kind of never really put the pieces together. A story that I've told lots of times that is so embarrassing, but one of my favorites is that um, when I was little, I wasn't a good sleeper. I'm still not. But specifically when I was little and my parents let me have a TV in my room because it was kind of like, if you're going to stay up all night staring at the walls, you can watch TV. Uh, parenting. So they gave me this like little uh, tube TV that I had in my room with basic cable. And like, there's only two things on basic cable after midnight and it's porn and B horror movies. And so I would watch all these B horror movies as like a very small child uh, and get super scared. And it was always on mute because my parents were like sleeping in the next room. And uh, so for the longest time I used to tell this story about how I stayed up really late one night and saw the fly and watched the fly on mute and how it like scarred me for life. And uh, it was actually for this um, article where a bunch of horror fans were talking about their horror origins, maybe like a year or two ago. And I started to investigate um, the fly to tell the story about the time I stayed up all night and watched the fly as a little kid and fell in love with horror. And I was watching the scene that I thought I'd watch. And I was like, this isn't right. I'm pretty sure it was in black and white. And I'm pretty sure he had a different kind of claw. And I like couldn't explain it. So I took to Twitter and was like, does anyone recognize this description, this vague description of this scene of my like formidable or like the moment that I became a horror fan from watching The Fly. Uh, and it was actually um, from Mant, which is a fake movie in uh, a movie about bad movies. And it's like 
a fake mini movie and a comedy movie making fun of bad horror that I thought was the fly for 25 years of my life. And I've never seen the fly. So there you go. I remember being part of that article too. Even. Like I was on there and then I think we had this conversation earlier. Yeah. And having that epiphany phase of like, oh my God, like was my horror origin even a lie? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. It was a lie. I watched Mant, a fake movie within a movie <laughs> that's not scary at all. And it's very silly with John Goodman. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but if are you allowed to even be Canadian if you don't know all of David Cronenberg's film? Like filmography, seen... isn't that a prereq? <laughs> yeah. Well, I've seen like The Fly with like Goldblum, but I'd never oh, seen okay. like the okay. OG The Fly because I had assumed that the OG was in black and white, much like Mant, um, but it's not in black and white. It was very much in full color. And... Uh, <laughs> That was the. But when you said you were watching B movies late at night, like I don't know what you know, what Canadian television is like, so maybe it would have been maybe it would have been totally fine. They would have been like, "Hey, it's just Cronenberg's Fly." Like at eleven p.m., just watch it. I mean, it could have been. It made a lot of sense to me in my head that I had seen The Fly in the middle of the night um, as a young child, but it wasn't true, uh, and so I don't know myself anymore. And you know what? It kind of does make sense that my intro to horror would actually be like campy horror comedy considering what I tend to lean towards in horror. So maybe it makes more sense than I think. All right. So um, childhood, and it sounds like not a ton of, maybe not a ton of horror stuff in the middle there. Certainly nothing, you know, some people are like, oh, I have to write movies or I have to make movies. It doesn't sound like there was kind of that teenage phase for you initially. Um, but talk to me a little bit about, you know, you, you said that like your 20s is really where you were like, oh, I'm hitting my stride. This is stuff that I really want to engage with. You know, how did that kind of, when did that become something you were like, oh, maybe I should write about these things online. Maybe, maybe I have something I want to say and maybe there's a place I can put it and other people might want to read it. Like, what was that discovery process like for you? Yeah, I mean, kind of long, but not really. I always really liked writing. Um, you know, I was the kid who took all the writing electives in high school um, and liked all of that stuff. And I was always into movies. That wasn't a secret. Um, when I was in high school, I was you know, again, the writing electives, and I always took things like philosophy. And in that, <laughs> most of, you know, my high school philosophy curriculum was like watching the matrix and talking about the philosophy in the matrix. And so that really made me start to think about like how movies can really be talking about bigger things than just being an action movie. It was actually a deep dive into metaphysics, which I thought was really cool. And that really stuck with me. Um, in undergrad, I studied philosophy, um, and uh, a little bit of English, but then I left that really quickly and studied philosophy and political science. Not very exciting. Um, and again, I, that really came with me. So when I was writing about metaphysics and doing my metaphysics paper, I did metaphysics of Schwarzenegger movies, which again, I talk about a lot because it was fun to watch something like The Sixth Day and talk about how that applies to theories of the self and what that really means. So I started to get really into talking about deeper themes with movies. Um, in undergrad, I never really thought about writing professionally until much later. Um, I did actually uh, want to write movies. I did screenwriting in night school, which was very fun um, and learned so much about <laughs> what it takes to make a movie when you actually kind of get your hands dirty in a specific topic. And then from there, um, I kind of fell backwards into writing about movies. Um, it was kind of like, I wanted to write movies. It was okay. I was okay at it and I liked it. But then I remembered, no, actually what I was really good at was writing essays about movie topics. And I 
ended up here. Do you have any any log lines you'd like to share for some of those scripts that you were working on? Uh, sure. Um, the one that I had, we had to do like a finished spec script and I did pivot halfway through and oh my God, I feel like I've talked about porn so much on this podcast as someone who never talks about porn, but <laughs> my uh, spec was a comedy about a guy who owned a porn shop. Um, I like it. Yeah. Very much my brand apparently. Mm-hmm. 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 Initially, I started with like an organized crime epic, um, and we used to do this thing at the end of classes. We would bring in actors to act out our scenes, uh, and it kind of teaches you a lot of like what an actor gets from what you write and how it actually sounds when it's coming out of someone's mouth. So I thought I was like so smart and wrote this really great, you know, organized crime drama. But then hearing like actors look at each other and be like, "Give me one good reason why I shouldn't kill you right now," and realizing that you're actually a pretty bad writer. I was like, okay, we're going to start from scratch. We're not going to start with the epic. That's not working for you. Um, but that's sitting there and it still does exist somewhere in final draft. Yeah. When I was in college, I did, um, I had a friend who was in the drama department and he did uh, his own version of Decalogue his senior year. That was his capstone project or his senior project where he re- recruited other people to write about the Ten Commandments and everybody took the Ten Commandments and he produced 10 plays and it was this fun little thing. And I, I am not a, I'm, I have no aspirations to write plays or screenplays. There's not a bone in my body that wants to make movies and there never has been. Um, but I wanted to help a buddy out. So I wrote this thing and I, I got to back you on that play. Cause like I wrote two drafts in the first draft I spent a lot of time on and it was like s- supposed to be smart and heavy and serious. And it dealt with all of these issues and it just was shit. And like the actors that read it were like, this is really, really bad. Um, and then I went back to my dorm and I just like, wrote for 15 minutes and produced like this half comedic kind of thing. And like at the end of the, the, the performance, when it actually played, one of the drama teachers was like, I didn't know you could write like that. And it's just like, it's like, okay, I don't, whatever that gear is where people can like really put pensive thoughts to paper and like tell meaningful stories about the world. When I do fiction, I don't have that. Like the few times that I, that I actually write fiction, I just, I, I, I keep it silly, keep it kind of light. Don't try and be something you're not. So you know, anytime somebody comes to me, we're talking about stuff or anytime somebody's like, oh, you want to write a short story or something like I feel like that's the thing is like, I want to be smart, but I'm not. I'm just sort of silly. I think there's we all have different writing styles. And I think the more you write, the more you learn what you can and can't do. Not necessarily can't do, but what you're good at and what you're not good at. Like I tend to be better at story than character. I cannot write characters like when I watch a long running sitcom and you're in like episode seven or sorry, season seven or something. And before any of the characters talk, you know exactly how they're going to react to a situation. That is just mm-hmm. like so overwhelming to me. I can't imagine writing something like that. Um, so there's that piece of it. But I always thought I was really good at dialogue and I still think I am pretty good at it. But it was very funny seeing these like grown adults try to sell this like really hammy, you know, <laughs> scene of a bunch of gangsters on a dock talking to each other. And I was like, oh, this is bad, actually. <laughs> but it's so good. Everybody who's going to write about film, everybody who's going to write essays, you should have that experience at least once, right? Like, you should have the experience of writing something and having somebody act out and be like, oh, yeah, there's you know, like, this is this is what it's like for a lot of these people. And I should maybe keep that in the back of my mind before I open up on the next movie I don't like. Totally. And you learn so much. One of the things I did was we did a seminar where we actually shot part of our films. 
Um, and depending on, you know, how much work your thing took and mine was pretty basic. So we were able to shoot like four or five scenes. And so it was basically just like a project for people's reels at this uh, group in Toronto. So it was like actors did it, writers did it, directors did it. And you basically all got to go home with something to say, like for your reel or for your portfolio. So it was really fun. And I learned so much watching a director read what I wrote and then turn that into something to shoot. I was like, oh, that's how you read something like that. And like, you know, you can tell something that you think is really funny if the director doesn't notice that it's funny you probably didn't do a good job writing it. You know what I mean? Or if you feel like, you know, you got to put in brackets that the person is angry when they say something, like you didn't do a good job writing it because it should be really obvious that they're angry, things like that. So I learned so much about what actors and directors and writers actually contribute and give to a movie. And it was very, very enlightening. It's very interesting to hear all this coming from my uh, perspective because, sorry, like on, I mean, growing up, my creative juices i guess were not flowing as much as they were because as i've alluded to on the podcast before i didn't really like writing all that much i didn't have a desire to pursue any creative outlet uh, artistically like especially painting stuff of that nature so like all these things just never clicked until so late in my life where i don't think i had the first inkling for any kind of screenplay until like a few years ago so like all before that it was just discovering like all before that it was just business thoughts and just playing it safe and just doing what I had to. And man, like if I actually had that kind of ambition earlier in life, I kind of am curious to see what would have happened because if I didn't spend all that time, just I'm not going to say studying. I basically just taking open notebook tests and trying to sleep my way through classes. But Mm -hmm. if I didn't do all that, business school, business, business. I did business experience. (laughs) Yeah. A hundred percent. I just slept my way through most of my classes, but still, if I didn't do that and I actually focused on, I don't know, maybe these ideas that I have now that are never going to come out. I like a hundred percent. They're never going to see paper because I I'm just, I have no fight left to try writing a script doing everything else I'm doing, but I don't know. Curiosity. I think, I think you'd be surprised though, because I think just based on what you just said, I feel like we probably are in similar situations. Like I always really liked writing and it was always something that I did, but it was always a hobby. I would take like night classes or weekend seminars and it was just a hobby of mine. I never actually considered it as like, a job or something that people did because where I was, it was very much like you go to business school, you go to med school, you go to law school and that's what everybody does. And I never even thought of it as a career path and finding that later that it was like something that I could do professionally was very enlightening. And like people that I know from my undergrad that have become prolific writers were such motivation for me. And yeah, same, like as much as I did study it, I definitely got into it pretty late. Like I'm a late comer well, I don't know necessarily, like, I'm still relatively green, and I'm not a spring chicken, as they say. That, it's a, it's a whole ditto, because same thing. I didn't, I didn't find, I didn't find my uh, writing abilities, let's say, I guess we'll call them, or my critiquing skills until mid-20s. I mean, that's, that's when it really came out, and I, I honestly think I only got really good at it maybe a year ago. I mean, until then, I was good at it, don't get me wrong, I, like, I made a career for a reason, but Honestly, I don't think I hit my stride until just doing the work and putting the effort in and honing everything that we do for years and years of just grunt work, basically, I would say. And again, if I'd started that grunt work so much earlier, I don't know. You ponder things. There's two ways to get good at this, right? There's like, there's get edited, which, (laughs) you know, 
not in 2020, not in this industry. By who? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. get get edited by by talented editors, which which there are many talented editors, but precludes sites that are willing to pay talented editors, which knocks off 99% of them. Um, or just like just write so much that you like burn out the bad parts of your writing process, right? Like that's the other side of it too. Is and there's a lot of people that have done that. You're as prolific as anyone I've ever met, Matt. Um, and you know, even in the time that I've known you, I think you've gotten a lot better as a writer. And that's just you're writing so much that there just isn't there isn't room for the bad anymore, right? Like you literally are burning the old styles. You're like you're improving as a writer because the volume is teaching you how to do it each and every time out. And I think that's probably something that is common to the internet generation, the 30-somethings that that um, or 40-somethings that grew up at the chuds of the world, that grew up in the early beginning days of the internet. Like they just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote until they polished themselves over time. Enough pressure, you get a diamond. That's, I think, kind of an entire generation of film writers and what we're looking at. And also reading so much. I've learned more by reading what my friends have written and other critics have written and been like, oh, okay, that was important. And there are things that I didn't talk about in my reviews for a while that now I realize are important to talk about and consider and you know, seeing the formatting people use and seeing what people like and people don't like. I definitely have learned so much by reading. And like, I'm, I'm a student, like I'm the type of person who, if there's like a class that I can take to learn how to do it, I'm going to do that. Um, and I did like, as soon as I was like, you know what, I do start, I do want to write in magazines and I do want to write in the internet on the internet. Um, I like guys, I love night school apparently. Um, you know, I took a multimedia journalism course and I was like, I'm going to do it. And it taught me the business of it. It taught me what works. It taught me things like how to pitch and how to invoice and, um, you know, how to find the right voice in certain websites and all of those types of things. But at the end of the day, I learned how to write movie reviews by reading a lot of movie reviews. Yeah, the last thing I'll kind of say on this as we taper off and get into the movie in a little bit, but I wish I took a class on pitching and all of those, everything you just said, invoicing, the things that we need to know as freelancers Mm -hmm. that don't get taught to anybody. I was doing it wrong for countless years, you know? I I had the, yeah, exactly. Like I had the experience of writing for a website that didn't edit me that didn't say no to me and literally was paying me so little that it didn't matter. So to them, it's like, sure, Donato can write whatever the hell he wants. He's going to review all the movies. I don't care because I'm getting content on my website and that's going to work for me. You are literally cheaper to hire than like computer generated, like AI generated content. Yes. Straight up. Yeah. But what that did is years and years of not being edited and it makes you think that well, my stuff is good. And boy, howdy, if I go back and read some of the things I wrote eight years ago on this website that never gave a shit about my quality, I'm fucking embarrassed. I mean, just straight up some of the stuff like eight years ago. I wrote good stuff for the website as I as I got better as you described, Monocle. But, you know, those first things that I wrote that were unedited, self-published, things of that nature, and I'm going like, yeah, this is all great. Then I get out in the big bad world and the first piece that I get that comes back, hey, Matt, this is a really good start. Here's a bunch of things you need to do on it. <laughs> it was time. so, I mean, like crushing, don't get me wrong. Absolutely soul crushing. As a writer, it is everything that goes against uh, what we think, that we think our points are obviously the best and things of that nature. But the most important relationship between a writer is a writer and their editor. It's always forever going to help the writer it's always forever important that somebody else come in and tell you 
how to be a better writer. And a lot of people forget that. And oh, again, yeah. a lot of people, the pitching, a lot of people, the invoicing, the easier you are to work with, the more hireable you are. I don't get why a lot of writers don't understand that at this point. Um, there are many different websites out there. Like like you just said, Lindsay, you need to know how to write for a website, not alone how to write. Mm-hmm. If I go to a more prestigious place, I, I have to kind of take a different tone than if I'm writing a more pop culture piece. It, there are two different ways to approach these subjects. And that is important. And also how good you are at, at working with an editor. I mean, if you keep making the same mistakes to the same editor over and over again, there is a reason that they will stop giving you work. That's yep. just how this is. This works. Like this is a business. And again, a lot of freelancers forget that. They forget the fact that we are in a business. This isn't a charity. You could be a good writer, but if you don't want to adhere to someone's style and if you're continually bat, like butting heads with an editor, yes, you might lose that opportunity. And man, there, there needs to be way more of an intersection of honestly, like a little bit of business acumen, a little bit of how to work in a business environment while still being a creative writer. Like those need to go hand in hand and I, you don't, you don't see it all that often. Yeah. Like learning the business was so, so invaluable. Like little things that just make you not look dumb. Like I was a bad pitcher. I sent so many bad pitches because I was very much like, shoot your shot. It's the only way to get into it. And there's probably so many sites that have like on, have me on like a block list by now, but um, just like learning how to do it and what's appropriate behavior and how to approach things was just so valuable that like, even though did it make me a better writer in that class? Like maybe I learned a bit about, you know, certain style things, but at the end of the day, what it really taught me, like something as simple as like invoice after publishing, I was like, Oh, okay. Like I wouldn't have known that. And you might've sent an invoice to someone too early and look like a J hole, but I don't know. There you go. Yeah. The pitching thing is uh molto so important. Uh, it's so hard. Don't get me wrong, it's so hard. I've I've sent the in the pitches too of like, hey, I'm a young aspiring film critic. I wanna work for your site and start writing about movies for it. And it's like that email got sent right to a trash, got got like filed away. And I I know now. I know where I made my mistakes, thankfully. Yeah. Um, it's it's not easy. And you learn by making the mistakes, but I, I just wish there was an easier way to convey to people, you know, there is a way to do this. Pitch, pitching is an art. Pitching, you know, I'm sorry if some people don't get certain opportunities because their pitching isn't where it needs to be. And like, that sucks. It sucks that this is something that needs to be taught further than experiential learning. Yeah, like but, I'm yeah. definitely not an expert in any sense of the word and I wouldn't purport to be. But if anyone ever did ask me for advice of like how to pitch and how to land at a site or whatever it is, I'd be like, follow every editor of every website that you like on Twitter, because more often than not, they're going to be like, I'm accepting pitches this week, which is yeah. something you might not know. Like maybe they only look at their pitches, you know, every three months and you might not know that. And they might be like, here's my pitch guide. Here's what I like to see. Here's what I don't. And those are the types of things that are going to teach you so, so much. Should we have any aspiring writers in the audience? Yeah. And the one thing I'll add to that is, you know, we, Donato and I often celebrate the day job writers, um, the people that are working nine to fives and then writing in the evenings, because that's, that's tough in its own way, right? Like that's a, that has a different kind of skill set that, that requires, and you're not, you know, you have to balance, you have to juggle. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different. Um, but I think the one thing, the one thing that, that I appreciate about that is it means that the business side of things are never too far away um, from my point of view in the writing process. Because 
you know, a lot of times we think like, oh, I've got a great idea. I, you know, I've got a great vision or I'm a talented essayist or whatever it is. And, you know, if not the editor, if not the person that hires you that has to make these kind of like business decisions about whether or not they hire you, if they have the budget, if they like your pitch, if it's going to be you versus somebody else, all of that, then certainly the person that they're answering to is. And if not that person, then the person above them. So it's always good. We, we should never lose sight of the fact for better and worse that all of these publications, all the places that we want to write for are small businesses and they're operating as such. Yeah. Good point. Well, that seems like a good place then uh, to pivot from talking about writing and us to talking about today's movie. So when we come back, we're going to get caught up in a fugue state. Hey, folks. So this is the part of the podcast where we take a break from our excellent show. Lindsay's a good guest. I hope you guys are having a good time. And we talk about the people that help power the website and help power this podcast, our patrons. Couldn't do the show without them. And as a way of saying thank you, we give them an opportunity every episode to share their voice with you, our listeners. So, Mr. Donato, if you'll please, who do we have in store for this evening and what questions, comments, concerns are they having us address? So we're going to start with Amelia once again, who now is on her, like I think, third or fourth bumper. You know Amelia from the episode featuring Patchwork. And you also know her as, well, Mind of Monogle's editor at What to Watch. Or you don't. And now you do. Facts. We learn here. This is fun. Amelia's comment. I hate you so much. Ha 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 ha. City Eager Brewing Company has a new t-shirt. Go buy one. That's my bumper. Lol. Give a little context for City Acre, Donato. Meredith Borders was on the Ojuju episode, and I think we might have mentioned that her husband Matt is the brewmaster there, and it is their company, and it is their sanctuary, we will call it. And it is in Houston. We respect it very much, and we cannot wait to go to it, but unfortunately, we cannot go there anytime soon. And more unfortunately, we all know how the restaurant industry is doing right now. They are a brewery as also a restaurant, so, you know, they're hit a little bit right now. So all that we can do to help them, whether that's purchasing a shirt Maybe it's purchasing a gift card that you can send to someone down there who can use it and do takeout. It all helps City Acre, and we're all about helping our community. So, hey, if you want to, City Acre Brewing Company. Look them up on the internet. Go to the website. See what you can do. That was number one. Number two, we have a newbie, our newest Patreon subscriber, Mr. Ian Wilder, who comes to us from the Perry Nemiroff camp. So, Perry, Ian, top, top critic, Perry. Absolutely. Much love to our Ian. Much love to supporting Mary Hour and Certified Forgotten now. Mr. Ian says, I watched Phantom of the Paradise and Sound of Metal back-to-back recently, highly recommend both, and found some interesting similarities between the two. If you could curate an off-the-wall movie slate, what would your double feature be? Keep up the great work, guys. Monogal, you go first. Yeah, easiest question in the world. Um, this is something I've been carrying in my back pocket forever. These are two movies that I love deeply and are strongly thematically linked. So I would curate uh, Targets, Peter Bogdanovich's Targets, starring an aging Boris Karloff in a career-defining role. And I would program that with Theater of Blood, starring Vincent Price. There are two films that uh, both have you know, fascinating and rich textual turns for what we think of as strictly horror icons. But in both of the films, the horror icons play aging theater, aging television stars, and there is much a reflection on the work that those horror icons have done to that point in their careers as they are really fun, really good movies in their own right. Targets is, you know, 
will at some point get a Criterion Collection. It deserves all the critical reappraisal in the world. And Theater of Blood is just one of the most fun, campy slashers that you'll ever, ever watch. So Theater of Blood targets pay homage to Boris Karloff and Vincent Price. And for my picks, I'm going to stay in the rock star world. And well, actually, I'm going to say the movie Rockstar starring Mr. Mark Wahlberg and then pair that with Lords of Chaos about black metal and death and what we do as anarchists in the black metal world. But it's genuinely just a double bill about what people are willing to do for fame, what they're willing to fake and kind of the monsters they create very differently represented in Rockstar and Lords of Chaos. Lords of Chaos gets super fucking dark. That's all I can say. Rockstar, maybe not as much on the dark side, but more mainstream, I would say. So you have two of these elements of rock lifestyle gods and, you know, how how all those towers come crumbling down, let's say, when you get as high as you do. That is the most Donato and Monocle double bill I've ever heard. I think it fits very cleanly, yeah. Well... There you go, Ian, there's your recommendations. Go check them out. Um, thank you to both of you, less to Amelia. She was mean to you tonight, I gotta stick up for my boy. Uh, and with that, let's get back to the show. Hey there, welcome back. So uh, for the next half an hour, you are with us and we are going to talk about Fugue. So Fugue is a 2018, 2018, I think that's correct, 2018 film written and directed by Thomas Street. It stars Jack Foley, Laura Tremblay, and Mike Donis, who are actors I haven't seen in other places, but I swear to God I thought I had. Um, And it is, think a little bit about a movie like Memento, think a little bit about a movie like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind meets Following, kind of an indie thriller about a guy who wakes up, he's suffering from amnesia, his wife is there and says, oh, you know, you were in an accident. I'm fine. You're being a little forgetful. Let's talk. Let's revisit some of these memories. And over the course of the day, as the main character is kind of trying to remember what it is he lost, we start to suspect that maybe his wife isn't exactly who she seems. And maybe the reason that she is there isn't exactly what he thinks. Uh, I don't want to give too much away because it's one of the, we're going to talk about, it's going to be spoilers in a bit. So if you want to kind of talk all things to you, we'll be there. But as always, this is the point where maybe pause, go watch it. It's on Apple and Vimeo if you want to check it out. Um, and if not, I think we're going to we're gonna kind of ease into this conversation a little bit. And I want to start by asking Lindsay, of course, you are the guest. You brought the movie. Why Fugue for this podcast? Oh, man, I'm so hyped that we're doing Fugue. Uh, I saw Fugue at a very lovely Toronto Canadian horror festival called the Blood in the Snow Film Festival. Um, and what's really cool about it is very often these indie gems show up that are like small budgets. I would call this one a micro budget film. And um, the programmers are really great and they really find these movies that if you saw a trailer for it, you might totally brush it off. Um, but because you just kind of trust this festival, you end up being blown away by really interesting things. So I really love it because, um, you know, I hate when a film comes back and says, you know, this would have been better, but for my budget, you know, if I had a better budget, the gore would have been better or something, something like that. Um, I think there's such craft in taking a budget and creating a story that works within it. Um, And, you know, movies like Saw really worked by staying within their budget and things like that. And I think it's just such a good example of that. And that's what makes me excited about it. 
Yeah, I want to kind of starting off right there, like Fugue had a successful Indiegogo um, a few years back. They were able to raise $20,000 for the film. And they, um, in that post, in the Indiegogo post they did when they were fundraising, they mentioned that they had received over or just about $200,000 in in-kind services, basically partnering with other organizations, quid pro quos, favors from other filmmakers, things of that nature. So this is definitely, definitely a movie where, um, you know, you said it right, like a micro budget movie. It it doesn't, it doesn't actually ever feel that way because of the cast and because of the sharp location that they use. But, you know, the part of what I enjoyed when our conversation sort of naturally drifted to um, the creative process in the beginning, we were talking about like, you know, having to execute on a vision from a screenplay that challenges them in any filmmaker and all that. A lot of those same things are present here on the screen. This is, this is a labor of love type film. Um, and that kind of will frame the conversation I think we're about to have about it. Yeah. And to jump in from my perspective, mm-hmm. it, it is certainly micro budget. Yeah. So when I was watching the film to play a little off of what you were saying, Monogal, I wasn't expecting something as crisp and clean and the cinematography is you get this preconception. I think when you hear micro budget and you think blurry and maybe a little fuzzy, maybe a little tracking snow, things of that nature, just things that look quote unquote, like a micro budget film. And it's, it's non-existent here. The production is accomplished in the way that they use a location that again, you've alluded to looks great on camera. And the cast, it's all playing their parts pretty pretty well. So I was a lot more impressed with these aspects. And I, I actually thought I was going to be, just full disclaimer. Yeah. Yeah, it looks great, which I think is so to its credit. Like two things, like it looks great. And they do such a good job of realizing it's like, you know, it's the one location movie, right? You know, they don't have a lot of, lo- you know, budget for massive locations and massive flashbacks and you know, big scenes, other places, they take one location and they use it in such a way to tell such a giant story, or if anything, a pretty restrained story that alludes to being more giant, um, which I think is just so creative and so strong. And again, that's what really got me about it is that it does something big with something small, which I think is such a craft, like to be able to write a science fiction action movie that works with a $20,000 budget. Obviously they spent more money by using things in kind, like you said, um, that's very difficult. <laughs> I think that's really hard to do. And it looks really good. It doesn't have that like clunky line delivery, terribly shot dialogue that immediately makes you feel like you're watching, you know, a made for TV movie. It looks good. No, it's clever filmmaking. It's smart, independent filmmaking and it's efficient, which is the biggest tell here. And we watch a lot of indie horror, all three of us, I think. Uh, We all do the festival circuit. We all have explored all there is in indie horror. And we've kind of seen the worst of it and we've seen the best of it. I'm not saying in any state that the movie we're discussing is the best of it. But having seen the worst so often and so many times, this is the kind of movie that shows how important it is to have a filmmaker with vision. This is the example of, you know, why do some filmmakers keep getting offers or, you know, like why do some filmmakers are going to stand out on a micro budget? And it's a movie like this because everything they're doing is so precise. Everything they're doing is translating to a much bigger, as you just said, Lindsay, a bigger, grander story 
then $20,000 plus what we know and a single location and a few characters. That's all you get. You, you, you're playing in a sandbox with so many, or sorry, so few toys. And yet you've built this grand imaginative world and allowed us into it in a way that, you know, other filmmakers with a lot more money who can't see farther than maybe the effects and farther than where some of that money goes. It's really telling of an, of a talented filmmaker. It's telling of how a filmmaker can make something out of nothing and also just impress people by it. Like this is, this is the, like, again, not the pinnacle of it, but this is a great example. Yeah. And I also like, you know, when I attend a lot of these tiny festivals, which like you said, we all do. And I go to all the local Toronto ones. And when I cherry pick which ones I'm going to go see in person, the horror tends to be what works better. I always find that the micro budget horror, the small budget horror um, tends to work. Whenever I see science fiction or action, I automatically assume it's going to be poorly shot action choreography because they just didn't have the budget for a lot of stunts and choreographers, or it's going to be really weird sci-fi that tries something, but you can't ignore that, you know, someone put together the spaceship on a $0 budget and it is really obvious. So that this was action sci-fi really made me think like, oh, I don't know, but it was the only one that I could go to in person. And I was like, just go, you'll have fun. Uh, and I'm really glad that I did. Yeah, I thought a little bit of movies such as, and again, I'm not comparatively saying they're on the same <laughs> level, but you know, you think about Coherence. And yeah. uh, there was a movie that I saw, I saw called Time Lapse. Yeah. Which is a little... Okay, you saw it too. Yeah, it's a little... fan of both of those movies. Coherence is one exactly. of my, like all times, but I also really like Time Lapse. Yeah, Time Lapse. For those who don't know, it's it's this little indie sci-fi thriller, uh, basically about pictures, and it plays into different realities, things of that nature. But what I'm getting at is the fact that you don't need the massive budget to tell a good sci-fi story, despite what mainstream cinema tells us. Uh, we're very, we're very. I won't say inundated because sci-fi is one of the genres I do think that is underrepresented as a whole, but most examples we see of it, we need gigantic spaceships and we need the interstellar cosmic overspending by studios to actually call it sci-fi where what we're doing here, uh, is it borderline sci-fi? Kinda. But that's just based on what we've been trained to think. Because this is straight sci-fi. This is straight manipulation. This is straight time parallels that are played in a narrative that is very good at playing parallel timelines. A little better than it should. I also, on that, I, I, in a weird way, I feel like this is two sides of like a coin with Inception. Because it's nothing like Inception, obviously. Inception is a humongous, fantastical epic right like inception is massive um and this is really tiny but at the end of the day it's a mind heist and i think in a lot of ways they're so similar and it's like what if christopher nolan had twenty thousand dollars you know what i mean which i guess you could kind of say he you know memento but which is following even before that yeah, yeah right yeah so i think what's cool about it is that it shows you it's something so, so similar, but so, so differently made. And it's not to say one's better or worse or to comment on the merits of either of them. I just think it's really um, exciting and interesting to see two massively different takes on a very similar idea. Yeah, I love the mind heist phrase. That's it. It's exactly the way to call this. It's a mind heist. 
Yeah. Just like Polterheist, right? <laughs> Yo, Polterheist 2021, baby. Start off on a strong note. Oh, God. Well, all right. Let me ask this. This is a question I've been struggling with since I watched it. Um, mm-hmm. Jack fully plays the lead character of Malcolm. He is this person who has um, sort of a, a ill-defined background who... Um, even as he starts to remember things, might not be the man that you think he is. Do I like Jack Foley as an actor, or am I just in fucking awe of his hair? And are those two things mutually exclusive? No, and yeah, I mean, yes and no in that order. Uh, Jack Foley, so this, he had two movies come out in the same year, but as far as I know, this is his first feature, because when I saw the screening of this, they said it was his first feature, um, but his other one, I think, came out first. So this is like the first movie the guy made, which I think is pretty impressive because there is action. I think his acting is pretty strong. Um, Also, uh, this is a Toronto thing, but I'm pretty sure that it went pretty mainstream viral. But Jack Foley is actually Fashion Santa. Are you guys familiar with Fashion Santa? I'm not, but I'm sure somebody listening to this episode just went, oh, shit. Yeah. So Fashion Santa was a thing that happened at a mall in Toronto called Yorkdale. And he's not the first Fashion Santa, but he went viral where basically the mall Santa was just super hot and super fashionable as opposed to like the typical, I mean, not that Santa's not hot, you know, no disrespect, but not the typical Santa that you usually see. They were like, we're going to have like a sexy model you Santa. Um, and then there were a couple uh, successors. One of them was Jack Foley. So he is most famous around these parts for being hot Santa. Okay. While you were saying that, I looked it up and um, damn is all I have to say about hot Santa. <laughs> yeah. 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 That man, that man has everything that I wish I could do with my beard and facial hair. And I'm not sure I could pull it off, but he like, there are some actors, um, Jason Momoa, another example of that. There are some actors like they just, they just get mileage out of what they've decided to do with their hair. And like, I don't, it's not that Jack Foley isn't a good actor. He's a, he's a good actor. He's solid in this role, but like he just looks so cool and so distinct and so unique, especially among people that I've seen in films before that like, it's just that the moment that he's sat up in bed and you looked at like the shoulder length gray and black hair and like the beard that's perfectly cut and goes down to his chest. You were just like, I want to go where this guy's going to take me. Like, I'm just, I'm in for this journey and it's, Something like that that I think, you know, you need every edge as an indie filmmaker. It's great that Jack Foley's talented, but like he looks great on the poster and he's super interesting from the get go. He's going to buy you, even if you don't end up liking the movie, at least like half an hour's worth of like, okay, all right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And they like lean right into it. Like he showers a few times in the movie. Like he's always, you know, throwing on a towel. And it's not like in like a, like a gaze way such that he's made to be like this sex object per se but they're like yeah we know he's hot and we're gonna let him be this like hot dude and i feel like what's cool about his fitness is that um often in movies when a guy's super fit for no reason you're kind of like sure okay um but i like that it's almost a story point in a way that this like guy in his casual country home is actually ripped and why what that might you know why that might be it's kind of cool yeah they worked that in there yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, dress him like a Viking, put him at sea, and just film him for like two hours, and I'm in. Yeah, fashion Santa! I, fashion I, now Santa I'm... With, the, with the side, like the, the side hair, like the, not the undercut, but yeah, I'm still looking at this photo. It's, it's uh, as the kids would say, skeetic, right? Is that what we say? I do not know. Yeah, what? Aesthetic, it's skeetic. No. Get off, t- get, stop looking at TikTok. 
Don't I can't understand you anymore. Don't you ever tell me to get off TikTok. Um, that also makes sense why Jack Foley uh, has roles in Christmas Wedding Runaway and Christmas with a Prince becoming royal. I didn't know that. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah, he's just riding hot Santa right into the uh, made-for-TV Christmas uh, racket. Good for you, Jack Foley. I mean, in a, in, a, in a year, in a month, where the two best options maybe for Santa are Mel Gibson and Jack Foley, we got to go with Jack Foley. hundred times. Oh. It's not even a question. Yeah. As, as Lindsay would say, hundo P. Hundo P. Is that, I still do not subscribe to the fact that that's a specifically Canadian thing. Everyone says hundo P. I, American I listeners, please aid us here. Nope. I've never I, said Hundo P. I have never I, you said Hundo the, P. You were in the thread when I was talking about how I say Hundo P all the time now. That's true. I don't care if I was there. I'm still saying you're wrong. Fair enough. All right. Let's let's uh, let's talk about the rest of the cast. Not that there's a huge, um, a lot of them. Because now I think let's pivot a little bit. Let's feel free to open up the conversation. Talk about the, the reveal, the midpoint reveal of the film and sort of where it takes us. You know, Hot Santa is doing a lot of good work in the film, but I think in a lot of ways, the movie belongs to Laura Tremblay as Helen, who's sort of the architect, the wife slash architect of the, spoiler alert, the heist that they're trying to do here. Um, What do you guys think of her? Because I'm going to go last because I have some interest. I'd like, hmm, but I want to hear what I want to hear, Lindsay, starting with you, kind of if that character and the fact that she's basically doing this two characters in one kind of thing worked for you. Uh, yeah, very much so. Um, way back when in 2018, um, I looked at her performance and I'm not saying that she was Leonardo DiCaprio in Shutter Island as if she's as good as Leonardo DiCaprio in Shutter Island, but I discussed her performance, uh, that way, um, spoiler alert for Shutter Island, but I think we're fair game by now because the trailer kind of spoiled it. But the, when you rewatch Shutter Island, knowing that everyone who seemed to be kind of spooky to the Leo character uh, was actually afraid of him because of his situation. Their performances get this double meaning where in a situation where you're like, oh no, he's kind of a scary cop that's intimidating these people and maybe they're spooky and trying to mess with him. um, It still works when you rewatch it, knowing that he's a patient they're kind of afraid of. Um, And I think that's a really, um, and their performance as well as his, when you first perceive as very powerful, you now perceive as kind of a scared, ill person. Um, And so as much as I'm not comparing those performances one-to-one, I think her performance does a really good job that at the beginning, when you first watch it, you do really think of her as his lovely wife and she sells that and she's very cute and charming and she has dimples and she smiles a lot. Um, And then you start to get suspicious as time goes on, but you're still not really sure if maybe you're just suspicious because he's suspicious. And then looking back at it, you're like, oh, she was suspect the whole time. This was so obvious. And I think her performance is really great that way that it's layered in such a way that you do trust her. And then you're like, oh my gosh, she gave me no reason to trust her. Why did I trust her? And can kind of rewatch it that way. And her shift in personality is really cool. I really love the moment around the midway point where she unzips her black sweater um, and reveals the outfit that she started the movie in. So the movie's told out of order. Um, Cause that's such a cool moment of, you know, you see her be the sunny wife and then slowly descend into being a little bit scary and suspicious. And then you see her be this scary bad guy. And then you watch the moment where she switches back into the nice girl. And I think that's such a really, I think it's such a great moment. Like when she unzips it and her blouse is underneath her black zip up, you're like, oh yeah, 
Um, so I think her performance is really great. Yeah. So I'm going to say up front that I was immediately suspect, or as the kids say on the Among Us game, <laughs> sus. Donato, stop. Get off TikTok, Donato. <laughs> no, that that has valid usage. Mm-hmm. Whatever. In any case, I, I knew not to trust her from the beginning. I There was never a moment where I was never suspect of her or suspicious of the motivations behind her character. But she did. She lulled me into a sense of comfortability. She lulled me into a sense that Hmm, maybe I know something is wrong here, but maybe she is trying to do the right thing here. Maybe she isn't the one that is the architect of this chaos that is kind of happening. And then and then you do get that moment, the duality moment where everything comes to light and you get to go back and you get to rewatch everything from a different perspective and see all the panic in her face that was hidden by the camera in the beginning portion when she was just the loving housewife. She's real good at it. She's real good at turning, turning on a dime like that. And she's kind of outshining the other criminals uh, as she should be. She is the brains of the operation. They are the men who cannot keep up with her for lack of a better term. And I, she was really easy to take in that role. She was able to roll with the punches the way that she commands the narrative and takes over with her whole, I'm going to make you the subject of memories you don't even have, and I'm going to mind fuck you that way. It's so good. That whole monologue she drives when she's toying with her own uh, criminal counterpart's mind, uh, Ian, her, I guess for lack of a better term, lover, um, because he gets very jealous when she does things with hot Santa as any of us would, because she's with hot Santa, obviously. But, but, but he's jealous for her, not jealous oh, for him. The rest right. of us would be jealous for him. It's, it's, it's right. okay. I know, I know what you meant. Yeah, yeah, it's confusing, because yeah. I was jealous, because, yeah, you, you understand. In any case, yeah. So when Ian is jealous that his... There's no use of really, like, girlfriend or anything like that, but when Helen reveals that she has uh, had relations with Santa and he goes off kilter... Again, the way that she dominates even him in that moment and just basically like hits him in the nose of the newspaper like he's a fucking dog in one in some ways and like just shut the fuck up. Like I'm gonna do everything that I need to. I'm gonna get this done. She takes command in a way that like other characters wouldn't be able to, and it's like other actresses would kinda they wouldn't be able to balance that. They would either be too aggressive, they would either be too in control, which I know is weird to say, but you want that person who's still kind of afraid and anxious and isn't fully believing that they're even going to get away with it. Cause I think she does think they'll get away with it. She's in control of that moment and she's in control of what she's doing, but I don't know. There's just this little tinge of still believable doubt for lack of a better word that she plays into the performance where she is scared. Still, she is still trying to figure all this out and get away with it. it, it it's all there. Yeah, so here's here's my thing about um, Laura Tremblay's character. Um, I liked her in this movie a lot. I actually paused the film and looked her up because I was like, who is this actress? I've never seen her before. Or I thought that I had seen her before because I thought I'd seen everybody in this movie somewhere before. It turns out I hadn't. Um, and I, I looked her up and I was really impressed by her and I watched it. I think she's really good in this film. And her character is the reason that I don't like it. And that's such a weird 
that's such a weird experience for me. But I think the challenge, the challenge for me in Fugue um, is that the film, like Donato, I kind of, I, I sort of sensed where they were going early on um, because I think that the directions that she's given, I think that the way that she decides to play the two sides of the character are just a bit too polar opposite for me. She is too calm and beific and understanding and not at all concerned and like in control when she's the wife. And then she's angry and condescending and all business and professional when she's Helen, the the, the thief. And it's just, it, it's one of those things where to me, the way that they did that character felt like kind of like an echo of characters that we've seen on screen before. Lindsay, you mentioned earlier, like that, that, um, uh, what am I blanking on the name Shutter of Shutter Island? Shutter Island. Thank you. Yeah. Like the Shutter Island thing. Like there are shades of other characters in films that have inspired this one in her. And I just, I felt that the movie never quite found a way to reconcile those two halves of her. I felt like we were looking at two very different characters without any kind of core in who she might've been. And it, it, for me, for me, it made the whole thing just wobble so off its axis that I, I really struggled with it in the whole second half because I wanted her to either be less confident as the wife or more empathetic as the thief to be able to marry those two sides of her well. And it just, it didn't, it didn't work. And it's, it's funny when you're watching a film, especially a film like this, it's, it's a, she doesn't, she's a very talented actress. She's really good with the role. But the margin of error in a movie like Fugue is so thin that for me, this one performance that was misaligned um, was enough to make the viewing experience less than I think the the one that both of you had. Well, I totally I will, disagree. Okay. <laughs> well, that's good. You should talk about that because you're a guest in our podcast. Yeah. I mean, I see your point. I don't, I'm not like, what a dumb point. I totally get what you're saying. Um I think that's what I really like about it. Again, I like her really switching. I like the idea that those moments where you maybe don't trust her are the moments when her panic slips through. So even though she's kind of like icy and angry, the rest of her character as the thief, uh, if you want to assume she's a thief, um, are pretty panicked. Nothing really goes exactly right. And she's always rushing and yelling at everyone. So I really like that in her performance, you know, when she comes in in the quote morning, like he's waking up. And when she walks in, she's a little bit out of breath. Um, and then she kind of puts on this warm wife mask. And I think what's cool about that is that she, you can tell she's rushed in there. Like, why wasn't she in bed with him? Why is she dressed and just getting home? Right? That's a little bit suspicious. So I like that she's a little bit out of breath because she did just run from outside. And then when Ian shows up, she doesn't expect him to come and she wants him to leave. And she looks panicked in that moment. And so you can kind of see through and that's kind of, I think when the audience starts to become suspicious of her is when she's talking to Ian and you're like, what's going on here when they're standing at the door and they play it so well and calmly, but you still kind of see her waver a bit. So I feel like that was really the marrying for me is that she still is pretty frantic and freaked out about what she's doing. Um, but she's presenting as this like warm, loving wife, which I think happens in a cool way. Yeah. And I was just, I'm, I'm agreeing with Lindsay here. I, I, I think they played it correct in the sense that, she didn't have to be both things because she's always the criminal. I, we won't even say thief. We'll just say criminal at this point. Like that's what she is. Like that's always what she is. And she happens to be very good at slipping into another persona and playing that because she has to. But what what is alluded to throughout and what becomes more clear as the second half of the film 
shows that she is a criminal is that that's always her mindset. I I think that if she if she was worse at being the housewife, if she was worse at being the caretaker and all those other things, I wouldn't have any of that minute. Like I'm not saying I was held in suspense the entire film, but there would be no suspense at all. Like I was already detecting hints early in, in the first scenes, but I felt a little more at ease as her performance went on. Cause I'm like, Oh, okay. There is a possibility here that there could be a wife connection. Maybe, I don't know, but I think she plays that correct. I think she plays everything correct in the sense that we needed her to be as good as she is at that. And because she's a better criminal doesn't mean she has to be terrible at the other thing. I don't know. That's kind of where I'm sitting on it. Yeah, I agree. Cause I also think we're meant to believe that he's some kind of super soldier, not necessarily super soldier, but he's some kind of trained soldier of sorts that has skills such that he noticed the moved uh, dresser drawer right away. And you see him immediately noticing things right away. Um, Should we call him some sort of secret Santa? Is that a, is that a good oh. oh my God. Yeah, we should. Secret ten sexy Santa. Ten, he's secret Santa. What's up? Love that. Secret oh sexy my Santa. God. That's the subtitle of this uh, episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> fugue, secret Santa. Um, yeah, so he's hyper aware of things. So even though it's like the Jason Bourne, you know, even though Jason Bourne doesn't know what he's capable of, he still can't help but notice all the exits when he walks in somewhere because he's trained to. And those are his instincts. So I think if she wasn't good enough at playing his wife, he would be on to her much more quickly. Uh, so I think that she kind of has to be really good at it. Otherwise, it would take me out of the movie in such a way that if she was really clunky at it, it'd be like, well, why didn't he notice that right away? Yeah, and yeah. I guess the the part for me too that that kind of made it so that it didn't work, and and those are very very good points. Um, I think it, it's going to be one of those things where like you know sometimes a read on a performance is enough to to cause you to not like it, but more so than was she good at like the the thing that she couldn't marry, or the thing that not she because I think she does a good job in the role. The thing that the film never quite married to me is the character of Ian and her relationship to him because. Mm-hmm. He is just sort of like for somebody that is as professional, as calm, as collected um, as she is, that has the side of her that can like basically do a sociopathic character turn on a dime. I could have bought that, except that there's this walking human jealous mess um, for what is clearly the most important job of their two lives. And like, I, you know, it, it leads to these kind of interesting character beats. It works in kind of the micro level where you get to have scenes between the two of them where they know something that Secret Santa doesn't know. And so they get to have that conversation. Um, but in the macro level, just the, his character with both sides of her, that, you know, call that a triangle if you want. That was really what what I struggled with is I think if there's no Ian, if there's maybe a, like a more faceless or they don't try and develop that tertiary character the way that they did, I think that might've locked it a bit more into place to me, but I could never quite reconcile the character of Ian with who Helen was supposed to be in relation to Malcolm. And that that's the thread that lost me. I, yeah, I agree with you there. I think Ian was too stupid um, mm-hmm. and it doesn't work. He's too bad at his job. He's kind of dumb. He's jealous and susceptible, which I don't believe is someone that she would bring along on this kind of a job. Mike uh, Donis does. It's another good performance. It's it, yeah. like I liked him in that role, but I did not like that role. 
Yeah, I yeah, that I agree with you about. The only thing that saves a character like Ian for me, because I agree and I felt that I kind of always hate, you know, the guy who messes it up. Like, why was he there? Um, I do. And they have no chemistry and I don't buy that. They have this like love story and the jealousy um, was kind of inconsequential. So mm -hmm. I agree that that was kind of like I didn't need it. Um, but the reason why he did work for me is that scene where he pretends to be his best buddy. I bought that. Ian is the guy or I guess the actor is the guy you cast and Ian is the character you write to be the stoic guy's best bud in like any movie. A guy like Ian is a guy who show up and talk about the time you got super drunk. You know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. that's his character. So I think I agree with you about most of what Ian does. I totally, totally agree. But in that one scene that sold it to me that, huh, who's this Ian guy? Did, did they just have like an affair or something? Like did his best friend, you know, did his best man bone the bride? Like, is that what's happening here? Um, and that really worked for me. But yeah, ultimately their whole little love story, he's kind of a doofus thing, did take me out of it. I think you're right. And that makes yeah. that makes sense. That's a that almost works at a meta level too, right? Because like Mike Donis is the guy that I swear to God I've seen in something before and it turns out I hadn't. And like the whole point of his character when he comes in for that scene is to be like, oh, remember that time we went to a bar and we got in a fight? And you're like, Sure, I probably did that with a guy that looks exactly like Mike Donis, just like you said. The fact that I couldn't remember whether or not I'd seen him before, like, no knock to you, Donis. I like you. You're good. But it's just, that is, he is the right face and the right personality for a scene where somebody's like, yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, I guess I probably did some stuff with you when I was younger. Um, so it is like his character 99% does not work for me. That 1% works really well. That we went to a country Western bar cause we like country Western girls. That scene is really good. And it almost makes me wonder if it's so good that like they came up with that scene and then they had kind of like built the character around that. They're like, well, now we fucking need him. Cause we have this really good scene that we've written. Honestly, maybe. And I think, I, I guess my last kind of take on this is the, it's the grand overall take in the sense of this is micro budget. What, Thomas Street put together is a simple smash and grab safe job where four criminals are there to, or sorry, three criminals, my bad. Three criminals are there. Well, I'm starting again, whatever. Yeah, one of them was a child. I, I know you can't tell the difference between criminals and children, Donato, but one of them was just a child. <laughs> Fuck you. You're editing this out. Whatever. Nope, I'm keeping it. God Shouldn't have let me edit it this week. Well, son of a bitch. In any case, so three criminals are there. They are there to break into a safe. That is just in a, it's like a first world problems house in a sense. And everything looks great. It's a simple plot. And without the character of Ian to, for lack of a better term, fuck everything up. Because that's what he does. This, without his jealousy, without him needing to be in that house and to be the block, the cock block to hot Santa. Because uh, Helen keeps... You know, she's like, I'm going to screw this guy as many times as it takes if we get the loot at the end of this. He is there because of his jealousy, because of his stupidity, and he fucks everything up. Because if he doesn't, who says that there's even a conflict in the film? And that's good. It, it, it's a good thing that you didn't like it in a way, Monagle, because that's going to be the big turning point for a lot of people. For a lot of audiences and viewers, the issue is going to be how do we sustain such a straightforward criminal plot in a 90 minute movie about amnesia and other things of that nature. And I think for me, 
it does do that. But obviously, this isn't going to work for everybody. And again, that is also the pratfall of a lot of micro budget films as well. It's just not going to be the pacing and tone that a lot of people are looking for because tone's all pretty one way. The pace is what you can do with a handful of actors in a house somewhere. So it's a good example of how it works for some people and how it won't. And I, I think Ian is that Ian is that factor that is going to either sink or, you know, kind of highlight what they were, what uh, the filmmaker could effectively do with a character like this versus how his moronic kind of, it, again, it is jealousy, how that ruins everything. Yeah. His jealousy sucked. I do think, reflecting now that he had to be a little bit dumb because he kind of works as an exposition machine because even though I do think that ultimately the whole memory theory is a little bit flimsy um I don't think it's super well developed and it's kind of like a very much a suspension of disbelief situation um that moment where she plants the fake memory in Ian's head I do kind of hate that he's dumb because you have to imagine that she's going to do it to someone who's much smarter than him, presumably um, that Malcolm's very smart. Um, But he had to be questioning it in that last moment so that she could tell the audience what she's going to do. I think. Yeah. And I want to, I want to note here too, kind of as we're, we're wrapping this, I think there's a difference between a plot hole and just a decision. And I think what we're talking about, it's important to remember that these aren't plot holes, you know, like, what does Ian know? When does he know it? How does he like, these are not the kind of things that you're going to read on a um, Buzzfeed list of like, Oh, the 10 biggest plot holes in fugue. You know, these are, <laughs> these are conscious trade-offs that were put in the film decisions that were made by the director for the reasons that we've talked about. And so this is not, you know, it, it is important to know if you don't like something because you think a character would do something different, which probably isn't a valid concern. And uh, to criticize something because you're like, I don't know if what happened, sets the story up or moves the ball forward narratively in a way that that works for the characters based on what have already created. So, you know, I, I, I want to make that imp- important distinction because sometimes, you know, like, oh, she would never go with somebody who's dumb as that. That's a plot hole. Like, well, <laughs> if you're if you're talking about the way that these characters have been set up, the goals that they have and the means that they're using to obtain those goals, it's fair to kind of criticize these parts of the process. It's not fair to say like, Helen would never do that because I know her inside and out. So, you know, Miss me with your plot hole conversation, but do please, if you watch this, let, let I don't know, let us know what you think about Helen and you. I, I um, feel like I feel like they're an important. They're they're the movie is going to succeed or fail not based on Secret Santa, but on on Helen and Ian and what they accomplish. Totally, and I think what's super restrained and it's really restrained to the movie, but then it also makes you really really rely on these characters. I mean, the movie's using a MacGuffin, the movie's using you know. Um, a lot of mystery. We don't know who they work for or why. We have no idea what's in the safe. We have no idea why they're hunting it. We have no idea who's a good guy, who's a bad guy, and if anyone is a good guy or bad guy. So he's using a lot of these uh, techniques, um, let's call them, or you might call them tropes, depending who you are. And it does that in such a way where it just doesn't matter. Like there's no moment where it matters at all what is inside the safe. And there's no moment where it matters at all who they work for, except for knowing that it's competitive and uh, that they're competitive with each other and that their employers probably don't care how it turns out um, for them personally. So um, yeah, these are techniques. They're not like things that are missing. These are well-used techniques to avoid having to write a story that is bigger than the movie because sometimes when you have to explain something, you end up making it much worse. 
So this is the part on the podcast then where we talk about where does this film and how does this film find its audience? You know, clearly this is a film that has been certified forgotten. Hey, we have a title. Um, but what do we do? You know, where where do you think the niche is going to be? What is in what world, what circumstances, what kind of stuff could happen where this might have a second life or this might become one of those movies that gets talked about, especially among micro budget filmmakers and is like, holy shit, have you seen, you know, clearly it's not on the same level as um, something like, um, oh God, I can't remember the name of the filmmaker. The guy that does, the guy that does upstream um, colors and mm-hmm. Shane Carruth. Shane Carruth, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, this isn't on the same kind of caliber as, as Shane Carruth in terms of like people are like, oh, well, imagine what this person could do with money. It's not like, it, it is, that's a, those films are really, really good. This is, Maybe not for me, but a good film. But where is this? Um, where is this find its audience? Like, where where does Fugue, other than maybe Secret Santa, hold over Love, get, <laughs> get a chance to to have a second life on video? That's a good question. It was it definitely the people that saw it at Blood in the Snow liked it, um, but there weren't a ton of people that saw it at Blood in the Snow. Um, it's hard to say. I think that it could have a second life on VOD. I mean, I saw it theatrical. I think what was good about seeing it in the theater. I don't think it's a movie that requires a theater, um, but I think what was good about it is that I watched everything. I never touched my phone or looked away or glanced at something else. Um, And all the details um, in the movie, like what Malcolm is looking at is always really important. So I think that it really benefited from that. But if people are willing to focus on it, I think that it's really great. You know, um, Donato mentioned a movie like Coherence, which same kind of thing. I don't, do I think this is as good as coherence? No, but like nothing's as good as coherence because that movie's amazing. Um, so I don't know. I could see people really dusting it off and being like, what's this? I think what's tough about it is that the less, you know, the better. So it's hard to sell this to someone without telling them too much. Like even the poster told me way too much, just seeing Laura Tremblay's uh, face beaten up and seeing her look upset told me way too much. Um, but when I saw it, there wasn't a poster and there was no trailer. There was just, or maybe there was a trailer that I didn't see, but it was just what was on the schedule that night, which I think really benefited it. So I don't know. I'd be curious to hear your takes on like, how would you market a movie that does best with no marketing? I don't think this is a rediscoverable in the, in the mainstream mass, mass appeal sense, I would say. Mm -hmm. Well, not even mainstream, but like mainstream amongst the audience that we speak to, the certified forgotten mainstream, let's say. It's hard to imagine it growing buzzy enough because I, I think this is more of a filmmaker's movie. I really truthfully think this has a better shot at being discussed amongst the filmmaker crowd mm. as look what look what a filmmaker was able to do, one of us, with nothing. You know, like look what they were able to achieve and the storytelling aspects and all the technical things that we're talking about might not matter that much to a viewer and might not impress them that much. And their focus and their hang up might just be, well, okay, are we going to stuck be stuck in this house the whole time? Is it just these characters or, you know, I've already figured out where this is going. Is it going to do anything different? And a lot of those answers are, you know, yeah, you're stuck in the same house. Yeah. These are the same characters and no, you're really not going to, see anything different than what you probably expect but the execution is what impresses and if we write about films where we care about that kind of stuff i think this is a film that speaks more to its merits than its entertainment value and i think that's where it could find a second life 
in people that care much more about the craft and much more about being impressed uh, just by execution. Yeah, and I'm going to take that a step further. I mean, Lindsay, at the top of the show, you were talking about how you like taking classes. I'm a, I'm a classroom guy myself, too. I feel like I learn best in that setting. And I think what would be really interesting um, for me, I think the best, maybe one of the best second places, second lives for this movie is if somebody did a class on either micro-budget films or specifically crowdfunded films, I could see a really interesting curriculum that is a mixture of like the finances and economics of micro-budget filmmaking and crowdfund filmmaking and interspersed with some of these examples where you show a film like Fugue and you bring in Thomas Street and you say like, how did you make this happen? How did you get 200,000 for a, for a $20,000 movie? How did you get $200,000 in in-kind donations? Like, how did you discover this talent? How did you like finance everything together and duct tape everything together? Because I think on the, the grand sliding scale of life, like, is this a movie that I would compete against bigger titles, hundred million dollar budget titles? Probably not for me. Um, but this thing competes lean and mean against anything I've seen in under, under a million. And I think that's something that you could really do a good job with is basically take this, put it in a classroom setting, use it as an example of how not only narratively of how you strip stuff down to what you really, the, the bare minimum of storytelling that you can get away with, but also just the financial aspects of how do you make this movie happen? I would love to see this in a, in a curriculum somewhere. And I hope Someday somebody says, let's talk about crowdfunding. Why not Why not have a class on crowdfunding? And we're going to pull in a couple of filmmakers, show their films and discuss why it worked. And I mean, even just in the sense of show people what indie really means. And yeah. what I mean by that, even just specifically talking about Canadian independent horror, I knew I, knew I was going to get here eventually, but compare it to an indie movie. Don't do it. Don't do it. I'm going to do it. Do like it. Wolf Cop. Like Wolf Cop. Oh. We're here. We're talking about Wolf Cop. We're talking about Canadian independent horror. Let's I'm going to talk it. about Wolf Cop because it I, rules. I've got you but, guys talking about Canadian indie horror. I'm hyped. Yeah, go on. Exactly. But like show people what indie horror really looks like because by all accounts and purposes, Wolf Cop is independent horror and it's damn good at it. But what it does is focus on creature effects and things that, you know, Fugue does not look at. Fugue does not have the money to even imagine touching on. So I would love a class that really dives into, as you're saying, Monagle, man, show, show what independent really means. Show what micro-budget especially means. And show Fugue and say, how much do you think that was made for? Have people guess. I, I guarantee you, like you just said, Monagle, that million-dollar mark, I think that would be thrown around all the time because micro-budget looks like do-it-yourself. Micro-budget usually, usually, sorry, typically looks like home home video recorder, go in the backyard, make some found footage movie that's barely watchable because the camera shakes too much. I mean, that's a lot of micro budget that I've seen. This doesn't even compare to that. This is leagues above that visually, aesthetically. And it just, again, it goes back to that example that I think this is a filmmaker, teachable, merit-based, execution-based film. That That's where it's going to get its most attention. Yeah. And I think I I would be remiss to not mention um, what's cool knowing that it's such a tight script is that it actually was written and directed by Thomas Street, who is most known for being the uh, script supervisor of everyone's favorite comedy, Letterkenny. Um, and so a lot of the cast, or sorry, I guess a lot of the crew actually were people borrowed from Letterkenny. So um, it was co-produced with, uh, oh gosh, so it was produced by Christine Roshan. They called themselves Rock Street Pictures. This was their first 
project. Um, and yeah, I think it's pretty cool that they uh, borrowed from the Letterkenny cast and, or sorry, from the Letterkenny crew to put it together um, and seeing Thomas Street do something really different. I actually had a very funny experience um, because I did a, like it wasn't in a professional capacity. I did a set visit at Letterkenny for fun. Um, and while I was there, I actually met Thomas Street because he was working on the set and, you know, didn't think much of it, forgot about him completely. And then like a year or two later, I was watching Fugue and watching this director have his moment uh, at the Q&A. And I'm like, this guy looks so familiar. And it took me like another six months before I put it together. I was like, oh yeah, that's that guy who had the script. I was running around with highlighters. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's a really cool, you know, let's call it a Canadian indie thing. They just got their buds from down the street in Sudbury and put this movie together. Pretty cool. Well, I want to congratulate both of you for working in a Wolf Cop and a Letterkenny <laughs> reference in like minute Thank 80 you. of the podcast. Still in Sudbury, Ontario, you know, between seasons, all the buds left Letterkenny and pop if by. It's right you, the- if yes. the two of you on a podcast together had not managed to bring up Letterkenny once, I wouldn't have known what to do. I'm pretty proud. Right. We're hitting it right, right at the buzzer as uh, right to, reference, buzzer. to reference another Wolf Cop and its hockey scene <laughs> right at the buzzer. A... Well, this ended poorly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So that's it that we've talked. We've talked about Fugue. We've got, we've got their plan. Good. Just go get on a college curriculum, go work with other filmmakers, you know, wise stuff. We're smart people. Um, Lindsay, if people want to learn more about hockey or comic books (laughs) or the law or horror or any of the other dozen things that we didn't bring up on this particular podcast, Mm -hmm. what's the best way to connect with you on social media? Where can they see your work on a regular basis? The best place to find me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is SmashTravis, S-M-A-S-H-T-R-A-V-E-S. Um, I also have a matching Instagram. Uh, I really want to get swipe up, so I need 10K followers. So I'm just about 900, uh, or sorry, 9,900 away from that. Um, so, so if close. you want to follow me, uh, that would be great. Uh, that's where I'll post most of my writing. I write uh, at What to Watch, um, CG Magazine, and CGM Backlot uh, in Pajiba mostly. So those would be places to find me. Can I can I uh, promote too that you are pinch hitting? You are uh, relief pitching for uh, another podcast with people we know. That is true. I'm on the Pod in the Pendulum podcast uh, with Michael Snunian. I am uh, interim co-host for Jerry Smith. So I'm just keeping a seat warm for a little bit. Uh, we just wrapped doing Urban Legends. Um, and now that Bloody Mary is finally in the past, we are moving on to Final Destination, which I'm really excited about. For those who don't know that podcast, uh, it goes through uh, franchises and every installment, whether we like it or not. Um, so I'm pretty hyped to blow through Final Destination because my love for that franchise is recently resurrected. So please stay tuned and check those episodes out. Nice. Donato, uh, what do you do? Where are you? How can people read you? All that stuff. I think I'm pretty unreadable. I mean, you've hung out with me in person, right? Yeah, but that doesn't have anything to do with my ability to read you. I mean, you couldn't pay me to read you, but I'll hang out with you in person. That's fair. I thought you meant just like reading me, is it? Never mind, you didn't get that. Okay. Oh, you can find me. You're like millennial convo and uh, and Monogle's on TikTok where he speaks Gen Z, so he doesn't know what read you means. It's true. I am a youth. Donato, please tell please tell people where they can find your your A plus film criticism, and especially now that you're producing reviews on a super regular basis for our friends at What to Watch. You can find me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterbox, and Instagram. 
you can find my work at what to watch and yeah just just a bunch of places i'm in the new fangoria that comes out and what is next month something like that so just follow follow the uh what you say? What? I was just like it's such a casual flex. You like name, yeah. and you're like, oh, I'm in like the new Fangoria, or whatever. Um, yeah, you know, I'm just I'm just over here. For, you can't see it, but I actually am flexing, so it's not that casual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In any case, at Donatabomb on the socials, I'll tell you where I'm at. Do it. As for me, you can follow me on Twitter at Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. Uh, I wrote every article in this weekend's New York Times, so you know that's pretty cool too. No, I didn't do that. Um, but you can you can follow my film criticism in places such as What to Watch slash Film. God, I don't even remember what I write for anymore. The, the playlist. playlist. Yeah, I just like it's everything's just the blur. Twenty twenty, man. Fuck it. Um, I write good. Sometimes you'll find me in places I like. I have great editors. That's that's pretty much the gist. Uh, yeah. So that's the uh, episode, Lindsay. Thank you for being the first person to transition from print to broadcast it's nice to to bring somebody over from the print side and we'll hope to have you back on when uh when letter kenny does a special one-off horror movie thing that seems inevitable right i feel like a halloween special is pending uh they've done a halloween episode already so i don't know if we can go back there we go patreon bonus how about that (laughs) i'm available all right tanata take us out letter kenny fuck you Let it rules.